From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's been nearly two months since the Marshall Fire swept through Boulder County. That's unprecedented in my career to see a firestorm like that in a heavily populated area. How the convergence of weather and climate helped fuel it. Then Southern Colorado loses a powerful voice at the state capitol. Leroy Garcia is moving on to the Pentagon. Also, a student journalist uncovering the Douglas County School Board. And you shouldn't judge a record by its cover, but the album art for Judy Collins' latest release does tell you something, because her hands are prominent. I have these hands that have been able to carry me through this 60-year career. Hi, I'm Gudrun Rice. I am retired, and I am grateful that I have an IRA. I have been able to give money to Colorado Public Radio as part of my yearly required minimum distribution, and I have found it a particularly tax-advantageous way to give, and it increases my ability to give to CPR. Learn more on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The two-month anniversary of the Marshall Fire in Boulder County is almost here, and we still don't know how it started. Today, though, a closer look at why, the conditions that turned it into a firestorm, and what the spring and summer may hold. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson has been a leader in bringing climate change to local TV weather forecasts. And he'll join us regularly on Colorado Matters for conversations about weather and climate. Hi, Mike. Hi, Ryan. The Marshall Fire, now considered the most destructive in recorded state history, One person confirmed dead, more than a thousand homes destroyed. Uh, Do talk about the meteorological and climatological convergence in that part of the state, Louisville and Superior, that made things so bad. Well, let's start out from the meteorological perspective on that, Ryan. And on that particular day, we had a brutally strong downslope wind event that developed. Now, the reason that the winds get so strong up there is they really come screaming right out of the mouth of El Dorado Canyon. And that is, of course, uh, funneling all of those strong winds coming in from the west and blasting them out across the eastern plains. A lot like the, uh, we call it the Venturi effect. If you're walking between a couple of tall buildings in downtown Denver and the winds get funneled right through there, you'll get Mm. very strong winds. On that day, we also had a loft, a little cap in the atmosphere, a stable layer of air that kind of pushed all of those strong jet stream winds closer down to the surface. So it was the combination that would bring you an extreme wind event. Not uncommon. We get them very often in the Boulder area, especially all along the Front Range in the wintertime months when you get strong winds aloft. You'll develop these strong winds that translate down to the surface. Happens every winter. You want to call it a Chinook wind. Certainly that is uh, something that's a very familiar term to people. Well, okay, this is fascinating to me because to describe El Dorado Canyon as a funnel and then to describe that cap, I mean, essentially what was created in Boulder County was the equivalent of a natural wind tunnel, it sounds like. Absolutely, like a bellows that you would have used in an old-fashioned fireplace. If you look up there, 
uh, and you see those uh, wind turbines, that's the National Renewable Energy Lab's test facility. They don't put those wind turbines there to generate a lot of electricity. They put them there because they can stress test those giant turbines to see how well they can withstand extreme wind events. And so that is one of the windiest spots along the Front Range. And anybody that lives up in that area knows that they're oftentimes blasted with extreme winds. So that's the meteorological part of it. Yeah, let's talk about the climatological. And, you know, just say a word or two about why those are different. Well, weather is what you get. Climate is what you expect in the long term. For instance, uh, if you were to take a vacation in Florida in the uh, wintertime, you'd expect that you'd go down there and have milder weather than you would here in Denver, because that's the climate of Florida. The weather on a given day might be that they had a strong cold front come through, and it's 45 degrees in Miami, and in Denver it's 60 degrees. Didn't mean the climate changed. It meant that you just got a bad break on the weather that you got that day. So to put it in context of the Marshall Fire, the weather was a very windy event that day. They happened. The climate events leading up to it was uh, one of the driest six-month periods that we've seen along the Front Range. We'd only had less than an inch of moisture since June. So that set the stage for very dry grasses in the area, very dry soils. And we were coming off one of the warmest falls on record, latest snowfall on record along the Front Range. We had a dozen days in December of temperatures of 60 degrees or warmer. So in that short-term six-month period, very warm, very dry conditions, which kind of set the uh, the stage there. You had a lot of really worn-out dry grasses that were tinder dry and ready to go. And those grasses had flourished because of earlier moisture, right? Correct. We did have a lot of moisture in the late spring and then it pretty much just shut off in June. So I, I'd want to be careful here that, you know, this fire could have occurred at any time. But as the climate warms, we're going to see more events like this. Uh, the, the other two biggest fires were just the year earlier with the Cameron Peak and the East Troublesome Fire. So it's consistent with what we expect in a warmer world, that you're going to have more likely times of warmer, drier conditions, which would set the stage for bigger fires. Mike Nelson, you have the long view both on climate and weather in Colorado. The Marshall Fire caught many by surprise. I think we tend to think of wildfires in Colorado as being forest phenomena. But Plains fires occur. Did this one surprise you? We were working that day. I've been working from home a lot during COVID, so I was actually at home putting my weather together that day. And strong wind event going on, and it was about lunchtime, we started to get some reports of some fires. And so by about 12.30, I was talking to the news desk, and that's about the time we decided we better get on with this because it looked like it was really developing into a, a big potential story. Now, I will say I've been doing this for 45 years, 30 of them here in Colorado, and uh, that's unprecedented in my career to see a firestorm like that in a heavily populated area. And I'm thinking about Waldo Canyon, which was in 2012. And uh, the difference there is the Waldo Canyon fire had been burning for several days before it finally came over the ridgetop and down into those neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. This fire burned for only a few hours before suddenly we have this conflagration going on in a heavily populated area. Uh, Let's unpack this connection between climate and weather just a bit more. I suppose the two 
coincide. And you also have longer-term trends like La Nina. Let's, maybe we can talk about La Nina here. La Nina, which is a cooling of the ocean surface in the Pacific, in the equatorial Pacific, cycles back and forth between El Nino, the one that's probably a little more famous, which is warmer water, a neutral phase, and then the cooler water. And it's been going on for essentially forever. Uh, when we have a La Nina, it tends to change the position of the jet stream across North America, and it favors a northwest to southeast flow across the United States, meaning that the jet stream comes in from the Pacific Northwest and cuts across northern Colorado. Mm. Stronger winds aloft translate to stronger winds that oftentimes develop at the surface. So during a La Nina fall and winter, we typically expect a lot of windstorms up in the Boulder County area. We've been having that. It's fading a little bit, but we'll still probably get a, a few more good wind events, I'm sure, through the late winter. And then it looks like La Nina will be fading into a neutral phase by summer and perhaps then coming back as an El Nino. This is looking long term here. We're talking months and months down the road, uh, perhaps by next winter. El Nino winters tend to favor heavier snow for the central and southwestern mountains, which would be great news for those areas because they've been really impacted by very dry conditions in recent years. Do you expect the La Nina-El Nino interplay to change because of climate change? Well, what we are finding is that for a lot of years, when you look at a map, a graph of global temperatures, it doesn't just go straight up. It's a stair step, if you will. And typically in an El Nino year, if you think about the ocean kind of uh, burping out all of this heat into the atmosphere, that's going to tend to give you an even bigger spike in global average temperatures. So for quite a bit of the last 20 or 30 years, we've seen that during El Nino years, we'd get our warmest year on record globally. During La Nina years, it wouldn't be as warm because some of that heat was still in the ocean. And that cooler surface water was actually helping to keep the atmosphere slightly less warm. And so it would stair step a little bit. That's where some of the skeptics would come and say, hey, well, we haven't any warming for a couple of years Mm. because we had an El Nino uh, event that was really warm. And then we went to a La Nina and the global temperatures were slightly lower. Remember, the oceans hold the vast majority of global heat compared to the atmosphere. So as these cycles occur and you're either putting a lot of heat into the atmosphere in an El Nino or less in a La Nina, that's why you will see a change in global temperatures. But that being said, with the increase in carbon dioxide from the burning of fossil fuels, think of each molecule of carbon dioxide like a feather in a down comforter. As we add those feathers into our atmosphere, that's like a thicker and thicker blanket, which traps heat that would otherwise radiate into outer space. Hence, global warming from increased carbon dioxide. This is fascinating because what, what I have now is a new picture in my head of um, the environment around me at any given time. It's layered. So I'm experiencing immediate weather. I'm experiencing midterm patterns. And I'm experiencing global climate. Uh, and we are subject to all of that at any given moment. Uh, we, we also know that in connection with this, firefighters and fire ecologists warn now that wildfire season is really more like wildfire year. I mean, the Marshall Fire certainly proved a year-round phenomenon. What is the wildfire outlook? Can we say yet, uh, heading into spring and summer, given all the variables I've laid out and you've laid out? 
It is difficult. Uh, when people say uh, uh, all of this is far too complex for us to forecast, that's not exactly true. It is easier to forecast climate than it is weather. If you circle back to what I said the, uh, early in the show about mm. going down to Florida, well, the climate is pretty easy. It's warmer there most of the time than it would be in Colorado, but the weather is far more complicated. But when people say to me, well, it's an inexact science, no, it's a perfectly exact science. Meteorology follows all of the laws of physics. So it's a very exact science. It's just exceedingly complicated. And so it's that complicated part of it that makes it hard for us to predict weather more than about five to seven days in advance. Trends we can do uh, a few weeks to a couple of months in advance. And the difficulty out of giving like a fire outlook for the upcoming spring mm -hmm. is that we still have to get through the upcoming spring, our snowiest time of the year. And if we get a couple of good snowstorms that give us good moisture along the front range and space them out a little bit, that can kind of delay fire season into the spring and give us at least a bit of a break. Uh, you know, May is still pretty much the mud season in Colorado. So we should have a break uh, for the next few months on that. Uh, but long term, when we talk about long term trends. We're going to have more extreme and longer fire seasons in Colorado because the forests are being subjected to warmer, drier climate conditions. Do I have it right? April tends, is it March or April that tends to be the snowiest month in Colorado? Uh, March is very snowy. April is still very snowy. And the first two weeks of May are frustratingly snowy. Uh -huh. that, you know, this is the best place in the country to live, in my opinion. But in April and May, sometimes I, I long to be back in the Midwest where the grass is green and the flowers are out and they're not shoveling <laughs> snow. How's our snowpack looking? We had a really good gift of heavy storms in December and early January that boosted the snowpack above average statewide, which given how dry it was in October, November, and the first half of December, that was a huge gift from nature. So I'm encouraged. We had such a, a slow start and then we caught up and we're a little behind now, but I think we'll catch up again. Before we go, I am curious how the technology, the modeling that allows you to do your job as a weatherman, how that has evolved over time and, and whether you expect, you know, further advances in your ability to, to predict the future, even though that's not actually what's happening. The actual first numerical weather prediction was envisioned by a guy named Richardson who was in World War I. He was a British scientist. And he envisioned that you could use computers to go through a series of calculations, moving, uh, let's just call it a parcel, a bubble of air from one position and one spot to another in another time and move that forward and forward and forward, basically using high level mathematics. The computers at the time would have been a room full of mathematicians doing calculations as fast as they could and then passing it to the next person. <laughs> well, with high-speed computing now, we can do that millions and millions of times faster. And with each advance in computer systems, we're able to make the models more complicated, smaller little squares, more layers in the atmosphere. You can shrink the time uh, frame from one time stamp to the next one to the next one. And the, the more calculations you can make and still do them in real time so that, uh, you know, the, the model doesn't take three days to run. If you can have it run in two or three hours, then you can use it for weather forecasting. So in my career, I've seen dramatic changes. I'd like to say that what we used to be pretty good at 
24 or 48 hours in advance. We now can do about four or five days in advance on forecasting and feel pretty accurate about it. And what we used to do for a 24-hour forecast is far more accurate than it was when I started my career back in the 1970s. And it's only going to get better. Mike, thank you so much. Ryan, I look forward to talking to you again. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson. He'll join us regularly to discuss the convergence of climate change and weather. He's the author of the world's littlest book on climate, 10 Facts in 10 Minutes About CO2. You can get a free copy. We'll link at CPR.org in today's Colorado Matters podcast. All right. We'll be right back as a Southern Colorado stalwart leaves state politics, at least for now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is proud to sponsor TEDx Mile High, presenting Colorado's thinkers and doers sharing life-changing ideas on the theme, Ascend. Explore big ideas taking flight across science, technology, the arts, education, business, April 30th at the Newman Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Denver. Tickets available now at TEDxMileHigh.com. He has been one of Southern Colorado's most prominent political leaders for a decade, a top statehouse Democrat. And this week, Leroy Garcia leaves his post as state Senate president for a job at the Pentagon. CPR's Andrew Kenny spoke with Garcia about his party's future in the fast-changing political landscape that is Pueblo. Hi, Andy. Hello. First, tell us just a little bit more about Garcia. Well, he's a sixth-generation Coloradan, a first-generation college graduate, grew up in Pueblo, as you mentioned, and he's an Iraq veteran of the Marine Corps. He later worked in emergency medical services, served on the city council in Pueblo before being elected to the state house back in 2012, and he later took on the Senate seat for that area and later won election there. This was his fourth session as Senate president. He took on that job after Democrats retook control of the chamber back in 2018 in the blue wave election of that year. What exactly does the Colorado Senate president do? Great question. I've wondered that myself. The president presides over the chamber, which is to say they get to bang the gavel to manage the discussions, and they have influence over how legislation gets through the chamber, how it flows. And, you know, for example, he could decide which committee a bill is going to go to. And he has a big role to play in deciding what passes, what the majority party is going to emphasize in that session. He's got to do that in concert with whoever the House Speaker is. Correct, yeah. How did Garcia approach the job of Senate president? Well, over his time there, he sort of earned a reputation as a quieter leader than some others and one who was generally open to compromising with people he disagreed with or at least having a discussion. Garcia saw one of his main jobs as maintaining decorum and civility and civil discourse in the Senate, which as a chamber really prides itself on being a little bit more stately. I think that is the key ingredient in any healthy democracy that you want to ensure that people's ideas can mature, be leveraged, you can bring about consensus. It's really important to me because of this legislative process. A hundred members, you're not always going to agree on one thing. And I think it's important for us to have that discourse, but to have it in a civil way. I care deeply about the Senate being viewed as a higher institution. It is known as the upper chamber. Uh, did he succeed in meeting that standard himself? As always, depends who you ask. You know, early in his tenure, there was this big fight over the fact that he used computers to speed read bills out loud, the Democrats did. 
And it was kind of this attempt to defeat Republican stalling tactic. Uh, Republican lawmakers actually sued him over it. This all sounds really esoteric, but it was a big deal at the time. It really upset Republicans. You even heard Republicans joking about it as they said goodbye to Garcia recently. But he contends that after that initial speed bump, that things did get more cordial. <laughs> That's right. Some lessons learned from that. Uh, I think, you know, we were all early on in our um, in our establishments as leaders, uh, each of us. But look, I always remind my colleagues, it's how you're going to finish, right? And if you take the kind of goodbye speeches that were made on the floor as evidence, you did hear a lot of Republicans calling him brother, saying they loved him as they saw him off. Maybe it's easier to say that when the guy's leaving. Uh, we have mentioned Garcia's Pueblo roots How did he see his role representing Southern Colorado? It's an important one because for Pueblo, for Southern Colorado, representation is always a concern. It's really easy to feel that the legislature up in Denver is out of touch with, like, for example, a union-heavy, industrial-based city like Pueblo or rural areas like the San Luis Valley. That concern comes up. You know, maybe the most famous example is Southern Colorado lawmakers are always worried that someone's going to move the state fair out of Pueblo. You hear that quite a lot. But it shows that there's this real pride in Southern Colorado, in its institutions, and a fear that it will be altered by the powers that be in Denver. So Garcia described that representation again as his first and his foremost priority from the day he got started. Well, I've always um, wanted to look out for my district representing Pueblo in Southern Colorado, um, giving Southern Colorado a stronger voice here at the Capitol, ensuring that the jobs that we have are protected, investments in capital construction uh, were priorities. And looking out for veterans and seniors have always been important to me. Um, It's been one of the things that that I care most about in the policy realm. So when Garcia announced that he was leaving, Senate Democrats actually picked a new leadership team. And this one's not really so heavy on Southern Colorado. They've got a new president from Boulder and a majority leader from Commerce City. And that represents a big change. Yeah. And then I think about the Democratic governor also being from Boulder. Correct, yeah. Uh, So what does it mean for Southern Colorado to be losing that level of representation and leadership? To make it even worse for him, it's not just Garcia that the region's losing. In the House, the current majority leader, Denea Escar, she's also from Pueblo. She's termed out of that district this year. So you could see her stepping out of leadership quite soon, too. And Garcia said, yeah, that's going to hurt. You're right. There is a chapter ending in the Colorado General Assembly, not only uh, my service, but my good colleague, uh, Majority Leader Eskar, who's been a fierce champion as well. And the duo that we have become, uh, secondary to her great work on the Joint Budget Committee and now as Majority Leader in the House, does give Southern Colorado a far stronger voice than it's had. Um, Some would argue back up until the 1950s, when that was the last time, 1953, there was a Senate president from Pueblo. So for my colleagues that we're helping to mentor from Southern Colorado, they've got some work to do here at the Capitol. Like you was alluding to at the end there, there's a lot more work to be done on Southern Colorado issues. Name one. Water. (laughs) Water, yeah. Water. There's this growing debate about how front-range growth, for example, is affecting the state as it drives this demand for you know, new projects as developers go and search for water in rural areas. You know, most notably, there's this proposal was in the Denver Post just this week to drill into the San Luis Valley aquifers and use that water for Douglas County. 
Uh, Garcia didn't speak to that specifically, but he urged his colleagues to be cautious as they plan for Colorado's water future. Yeah, I would caution them in deviating from understanding how important water is and for them to continue to make investments in understanding that, hearing from water experts, and really staying focused on on the plan that we have for Colorado. And the governor's done a great job of outlining how we continue to stay on that path. Uh, I think for me, it's uh, to be leery of new opportunities that pose a risk for the future of water here in Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And we are talking about the departure of a prominent Southern Colorado political leader. And that's the Senate president, well, the now former Senate president, Leroy Garcia, who's moving on to the Pentagon. He's a Democrat. Uh, But Republicans, Andy, Andy Kenny from our politics team, uh, they have really made inroads in Southern Colorado. Pueblo County, for instance, went for Trump in 2016. What did Garcia say about the future of Democrats in his neck of the woods. I pressed him on this a bit. And, you know, as a born and raised Pueblo Democrat, Garcia said he's pretty well obligated to have high hopes for the party's future there. His message for Democrats overall actually sounded a lot like Governor Jared Polis's current campaign message. And it was trying to focus very much on the cost of living, reducing barriers to small business, practical solutions. The one thing I know about Pueblo after serving in several capacities is that it, it People want you focused on the bread and butter issues, right? Not the flashy policy that might be the flavor of the day. What are the bread and butter issues that are going to deliver and help make my life easier? And when I say easier, the government's not getting in the way that you're there as a solution to the challenges that face small businesses or the challenges that face buying a home that's affordable in Colorado. These are the challenges that that weigh on my constituents. They weigh on every single Coloradans. And he didn't expound on what those flashy policies that should be avoided are. Mm. But you notice, you know, in that list, there's not immigration, race, gender. And, you know, Garcia actually, speaking of his kind of moderate positions, broke with his party on occasion while he was in the chamber, including uh, being a very lonely Democratic vote against some Democrats' gun bills. I mean, gun bills had gotten previous Southern Colorado Democrats thrown out of office. Yes, they had. They recalled. Yes. Uh, given that Garcia was moderate, as you've been saying, do you see his departure changing the politics of the state Senate? It's hard to say. You know, his successor, Steve Fenberg, has given a really similar description about his goal, his role as Senate president, maintaining that decorum, maintaining that kind of stately conversation. At the same time, I don't think Garcia has really been using his influence to shut down progressive ideas or leftist ideas, because what we've seen plenty of pretty far left ideas emerge. What's happening more often is that they're getting bogged down by the whole moderate caucus or they're running into trouble with Democratic Governor Jared Polis. So I don't think that's going to change. I think you'll see plenty more ideas across the spectrum, but they'll face the same set of challenges. Okay, this gig at the Pentagon, what is Leroy Garcia doing? And, you know, being at the Pentagon these days, given Ukraine, must be an interesting thing. I bet it will be. And Garcia, being a consummate military man, was was a little bit secretive or or maybe not extremely forthcoming about what he'll be doing there. Here's what he said. Well, um, the extent to which I could share that I'm excited to work at the Pentagon uh, for the Assistant Secretary of the Navy uh, for Manpower and Reserve Affairs as a, a special assistant. Basically, you know, he'll be working in the office that is focused on recruiting and managing military personnel and others for the Navy and the Marines. 
And when I poked him a little bit more, he described it as an extension of some of the work that he's already been doing here in Colorado. This is a new opportunity for me to support work in a different way at the federal level and obviously aligned with my values of helping ensure that Marines and sailors are taken care of and that we're doing the best to protect our, our nation, obviously, because I care deeply about that given my, my past military background. Um, but for me, Colorado is always going to be home. Um, it's, there's no, no greater state than Colorado. He has to say that. Uh, thanks, Andy. He's required. Thank yeah, you. CPR Public Affairs reporter Andrew Kenny on the retirement of State Senate President Leroy Garcia. Coming up, what it is to be a student journalist covering the Douglas County School Board. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver has an air pollution problem, and the world has a climate change problem. All those fancy new RTD trains should help fix that, right? If we really want to see a better city, a better world, we have to change. I'm Nathaniel Miner, host of CPR's new podcast, Ghost Train. In this show, I take a deep look at how transit could fix big issues our cities are facing, if we let it. Follow Ghost Train wherever you get your podcasts. The Douglas County School Board has been making headlines for weeks. Parents and teachers watch closely. So do students who discuss it just as fervently. Kira Zizzo is editor-in-chief of the Rock Canyon High School newspaper, The Rock. She spoke with my colleague Andrea Dukakis about her role these days as a student journalist covering her own district. Kira, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here today. So you're the editor of your school newspaper. How do you cover the ongoing issue with the Douglas County School Board and especially since you're actually affected by it as well. Yeah, as student journalists, even though these changes that the district is making are impacting us directly, we have to remain objective. So that's definitely been a hard part of all of this, but that's our job. We're here to give unbiased news to the community. And how we've been covering this is we've been boots on the ground out there Another staffer and I have been attending the protest at DCSD headquarters, the walkout recently at our school, and I've been listening in on board meetings. And also, we've been trying to cover every side of the story. So while we're out there, we're interviewing students, we're interviewing teachers, we're interviewing protest leaders, parents in the community, the president of the Douglas County Teachers Federation, and I even reached out to all of the board members. Mm. Unfortunately, none of the conservative board majority members responded back to me, but we've been doing everything that we can to make sure that we're reporting all sides of this story and making sure that everybody's voice is being heard. And based on your conversations with fellow students, what's the overall sentiment there, if there is one? The overall sentiment with students is that they feel like their voices aren't being heard. They feel like the DCSD board majority members are making decisions that push a political agenda, that are catering to a certain side of the political aisle while ignoring the voices of staff and students. And students have really expressed frustrations here, especially as they engaged in the walkout and as they continue to express frustration with it on a daily basis. At last week's board meeting, a commenter noticed that in director Kaylee Winnegar's glasses, there was a reflection of her playing Candy Crush and online shopping. Hmm. So the next day at school, students were really upset. They were saying that they felt like 
the public comment was just for show and that it, it's a way to say we're listening, but we're not really listening. Do most of the students you talk to uh, disagree with the decision to fire the superintendent, Corey Wise? Yeah, definitely. Most of the students at my school are very upset with what happened. I haven't heard of a single student yet who agrees with what the board majority members have been doing. And a majority of teachers, too, are extremely disapproving of what's been happening there because they feel like they haven't had a say in this. Because in this past election, for these new board majority members, most of the students couldn't vote. And teachers who live outside of the DCSD boundary lines couldn't vote as well. So in the meeting where the board majority members decided to fire Corey Wise and they weren't taking public comment. Director Mike Peterson justified this by saying that they heard the community's voices in the fall. And a big frustration has been, as I said earlier, that students can't vote and that the teachers, a lot of them live outside of DCSD borders. And that's definitely been something that people are upset about. Have there been any efforts by anyone to censor your coverage, to censor the way you're covering this saga? No. In Colorado, as student journalists, we're very fortunate because we have the same First Amendment protections as adult journalists. So our coverage isn't censored by the district. It isn't censored by our school administration. We as students and student editors, we decide what's published. So that's definitely been very helpful in being able to express the whole truth and not just what makes the school district look good. I imagine as a student journalist, this is one of the biggest stories you've ever covered, if not the biggest. What has stuck out to you in the story? I think the gravity of it has really stuck out because we have a school district with, um, I believe, 63,000 students and um, a few thousand teachers as well. So this impacts such a broad population of people, and it's so widespread. Um, by being out there and talking with the community about how this is affecting them, I've noticed that it's incredible to see my peers standing up and protesting for change. And I have the opportunity to make sure that everybody sees what's happening there and everybody sees how my generation is standing up for change. Now, most of the hiring decisions are going to be made in private behind closed doors. How do you report on something when you don't get to hear the proceedings? That's definitely one of the toughest parts. And it's definitely difficult because I'm trying to let people know what's going on. And it's hard that I, as a student, don't really know what's going on there behind those closed doors. So I do my due diligence as a journalist and I reach out to the board members. I say, would you um, do you have a moment to sit down with me for an interview? Could you answer a few questions for me? And if they respond, they respond. And if they don't, then they don't. And I don't really know what's going on there. So um, I'm doing what I can to reach out and get those answers for my community. But if board members shut me down and aren't receptive to that, then there isn't that much I can do about it, which is definitely really frustrating because I'm doing everything in my power right now. Have you requested an interview of Corey Wise? I am actually in the process of writing that email. I was going to send it tonight. But yes, I wanted to sit down with him and talk to him about this situation. This has been such a major 
topic of interest and um, it's generated such conflict within the community. And I'd love to sit down with him and get his two cents on what's going on and how he plans to proceed. Um, I'd love to really voice and express his thoughts and his feelings um, with what's been happening. Kira, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's been great having people listen to a student journalist. And um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Andrea Dukakis speaking with Kira Zizzo, a senior at Rock Canyon High School. She's covering developments at the Douglas County School Board as the editor-in-chief of her school paper, The Rock. Denver's neighborhoods are crawling with cats and with people who look after them. Denverite's Kevin Beatty has this look at lives, both two-legged and four. Like closer towards you. That's good. Really? Okay. It's a cold afternoon in Commerce City, and Dan Harsdorf and Dustin Hamilton have just hefted a large wooden cube onto the ground. It's a new home for feral cats, lined with insulation and complete with two holes for them to climb inside. Okay, this is beautiful. And there'll probably be 10 in here tonight. There are a lot of loose kitties in the Denver Metro, and they hunker down in groups known as colonies. And you may think these animals can just take care of themselves, but there's actually a network of humans that make sure they survive, and that their populations don't spiral out of control. My name is Dustin. I'm a volunteer. I just uh, help local community cats. I've been doing it for about 10 years. What I do, nobody else will do it. Animal control departments don't usually pick up stray felines. One officer from Denver told us it's statistically impossible to keep up with the numbers. So instead, people like Hamilton spend their days feeding, trapping, and sending feral cats to get neutered. And they often return them to their quiet purring grounds and bushes and underneath buildings. Um, I've probably spayed or neutered probably about two, 3,000. and what? Hamilton is kind of a legend in Denver's feral cat world. And he's connected to others through social media, where there's a whole universe of caretakers ready to pitch in. That's a really good place to like hang with people that have your same philosophies and goals. That's how I met most of my friends. This is Jenny Lee, a mainstay in Denver's community cat world. Ideally, we don't want these cats out here on their own. We don't want people to have to give up their weekends and their evenings and hundreds of dollars a month to feed stray cats. But there are not enough resources. For all these volunteers, all of this work is about preventing suffering. If they can keep the animals from reproducing too quickly and make sure they're fed and vaccinated, there will be fewer cats scrounging for meals and withering away under bushes. And though these felines don't have owners, Lee and her comrades say people are ultimately responsible for them. They belong to the community. They're the community's problem. The community created the problem, and the community needs to come together and make life better for them and solve the problem. If you live in Denver and you want to help out, ask around for your local colony caretaker or reach out to Denver Metro Cat. I think he lives here. I think he does, too. I'm Kevin Beatty, Denverite. And we'll be right back with folk legend Judy Collins. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When Clara Brown gained freedom from slavery in Virginia, she immediately went in search for her husband and children. She heard one daughter was out west, so Clara walked 700 miles and ended up in Central City in 1859. With her laundry service for minors and domestic work, she saved up an astonishing $10,000 and then invested in mining claims, which put her in very good financial shape. Clara opened her home to the sick, injured, and homeless, 
of all races and religions. And she traveled to Kansas to persuade Black people to move to Colorado for jobs vacated by mining strikes and supported their new neighborhoods. They called her Aunt Clara Brown, the Angel of the Rockies, who, at the age of 80, finally reunited with her long-lost daughter. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Colville Urban and Mountain Communities. Folk singer Judy Collins is prolific. When she's not writing an album, she's writing a book. And often her childhood in Colorado serves as inspiration. Whether it's her formative years at Denver's East High School or the time she spent soaking in the sights of Rocky Mountain National Park. Her 29th record, Spellbound, is out today. And the first single is When I Was a Girl in Colorado. Judy Collins, thank you for being with us. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so happy to be with you in Colorado this morning. The line from this song, I could conquer anything, expound on that feeling of limitlessness in Colorado for you. I have spent the morning today writing about my summer at Fern Lake in 1958. And Of course, Fern Lake Lodge was built in 1910, and I think the park was dedicated in 1915. But this has given me such rapture to write about this period. I'm writing a new book, of course. I'm always trying to write a book or a song. (laughs) And so Girl from Colorado really emphasizes those moments, which I remember so clearly. You know that feeling that you get when you're about 16 or 17, and suddenly the world opens up to you and you realize that you can do anything you want to do. It's an amazing place to grow up, Colorado. And it was all around us, the beauty, the glory of the mountains, when we could get to them. When I was a girl in Colorado I knew enough to your first love and was that in Colorado because this seems to me to be at least partly a love song oh it certainly is my first love was my my husband Peter Taylor my first husband we met when I was 16 and we got together and married when I was 16 17 18 19 in 1958 and well before that I don't know I had flurries with 
Dave Larson <laughs> and uh, <laughs> a couple other guys. I went out with a guy, a big tall guy who played a lot of football in high school. And Randy Robinson drove this smart yellow Jeep. And sometimes he'd give me a ride to school. And he also asked me to the senior prom at East High School. So I, did, I didn't dance very well, and he was the dancer in the school, so <laughs> I was sort of left standing in the dust there. Uh, you invoke Long's Peak. Estes Park has certainly made it into your songs before. Yeah. You also sing about the outbound Zephyr. I wasn't sure, actually, Judy Collins, if you were thinking of the breeze or the train or both. <laughs> I was thinking of the train. I figured, okay. I know that there was something called a Zephyr in my train history. I know. For and sure. To get out, no. I live in New York now. I love New York. I've been here for over, oh my, 60 years, I guess. And I love it in New York. And I don't know where I would live other than Colorado. But I go back to Colorado, of course. I have a brother who still lives there. In gypsum, and I skied the mountains and always get back every once in a while. Uh, back to some of the music and the track Prairie Dream, which invokes the trail of tears and, frankly, the destruction of Manifest Destiny. Uh, I yes. understand that this is partly about your father. My father was born in, on the Nez Perce Indian Reservation in Nez Perce, Idaho. He was not an Indian, but his favorite person was Chief Joseph, and he kept him as a model. But I have always worried and thought about the American Indians and the horror show that they were presented with upon the the showing up of the white man and the fight that has been going on ever since. So my heart just, somehow it's too much to take in. And I had to write that song the Prairie Dream is really a salute to the tribes. I got a few of the tribal names in there at the end, but it's really for all of our American Indian tribes that I have ever thought of or known about. Album art, or, or, or what I've seen so far associated with the album, uh, features you and your hands. And I wonder <laughs> what what you think when you look at your hands and what you see when you look at your hands now. I see that I have to practice today. I have arthritis. I've always had arthritis, but I don't have pain. And I have these hands 
that have been able to carry me through this 60-year career. I, I play mm. the piano every day. I play the guitar most of the time. I have to keep those calluses in shape. One of the reasons I put that picture in my hands in there is I'm wearing my mother's old wedding ring on my little finger. It has a barrier ring that holds it in that has amethyst in it. And then there's my wedding ring, and there are a couple of, there's a big sparkly ring. I don't know if my right hand actually shows, I can't remember. But the hands, the hands, they're so uh, important and so present, and they work so hard. (laughs) So Mm. I decided they needed to be shown in their proximity to my face. I think hands tell a story, and it's so lovely to see them on your album cover. Given given how much they've written, both in bo- yeah. both books and music, they also wrote the song Grand Canyon. So why don't we leave with that? It's about the Colorado River and a river guide. What shall we say about the song before we listen? Oh, I was very fortunate to get to know a couple of Longs Peak Rangers, and a friend of mine who sang some of the first songs I ever heard at the Denver Folklore Society meetings, Dick Parker. Dick Parker had float trips down the Snake River later in his life, but Mm. I knew a lot of park rangers, and I knew a lot of people who did what they did, climbed Long's Peak, rescued people who fell off the mountain, and who took river trips down the Colorado. It's the kind of a song which is reminiscent of a lot of things all at once, but that mainly tells the story of when Colorado was a major river with lots of water in it and lots of rapids. I don't know what the story is at this point in this drought, but I thought people ought to be reminded that it's a big, always has been a big part of the Western story and that people rode down it and, and lived by it and walked by it. It's a combination of my passion for the landscape in Colorado and my love affairs and my great memories. Once I knew a man who traveled down her waters every day Made his living guiding strangers where his shadows knew the way On the borders of the rivers lit the fires and smoked the pipes Told the travelers all his stories, dared them all to win the prize. White with foam, the water danced over rocks and under skies. Blue with summer drenched in rain, faster than I realized. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here with you. He was.